What up, family? This is a sermon from the downtown congregation of Park Church. May it bless your soul as you dig deeper into God's Word. More resources and info are online at parkchurch.org. Let's prepare our hearts to hear from His Word. Psalm 110. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter. Rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. The Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. This is the word of the Lord. So enemies shatter wrath, judgment, corpses. Welcome to Park Church, guys. Um, This actually shows you a little bit about what kind of church we are because we all have favorite inspirational verses and stories of scripture. And we tend to avoid difficult things, things that are things that are jarring to us, things that are offensive to our more modern, postmodern, and progressive sensibilities like this particular psalm. But we believe that if the Bible is the inspired and inerrant word of God, and all of it is profitable for teaching and correcting and transforming our lives, that it, it's good to pause sometimes and to dig into some scriptures that are not just very calming and encouraging on the surface level. And I think you actually see this morning that this Psalm holds a lot more than what meets the eye on the surface. So if you've been here for a while, we've been going through the Gospel of Matthew this spring. And each summer, it's the pattern of Park and a number of other area Denver churches to kind of pause and to do a series in the Psalms. And literally, they just pick up where they left off the previous summer. So I know Grace City folks, and if you're new to Park altogether, this is new to you. But we're picking up in Psalm 110. And for a number of weeks, we'll go all the way through a three-week kind of mini-series in Psalm 119, which is the biggest book of the, or biggest chapter in the Bible. And uh, as we do this, I want to just pause and remind you that the Psalms are like ancient songs and hymns and prayers. And one of the reasons that when we are, when we're hurting, when we are engaged with doubt and fear, frustration, we often fly to the Psalms because they're just real songs and prayers. They're raw sometimes. They, they carry all the emotions and the human experience that we still grapple with today. And so whether you're angry this morning or depressed or scared or confused or just feeling like, I don't, I don't know what I'm feeling, God has something for you in the Psalms. And we're also encouraged, I know you see Christ in the Psalms, but let's remember that as Jesus walked this earth 2,000 years ago, he had the Psalms. And this was kind of like his songbook. And the words that flowed from his mouth and the attitudes that he carried in his heart were richly uh, deepened and encouraged by what he himself was reading and singing 
as an Orthodox Jew who believed these words from the Old Testament. Now, let me just caution you before we jump into this, because what our tendency is to do with Old Testament texts is we just read it, we read a psalm, and we're like, all right, what does this have to do with my life? We don't want to do that this morning, okay? We're not going to do that in this series, because before we can jump to what does this mean for me, I want to ask a series of just three questions this morning. Number one, what did this psalm mean when it was first written? So why is David saying this in this context at this time? How would the original audience or recipients of this psalm, how would they have heard it? Then secondly, I want to look at how does the New Testament use this particular psalm? How does it quote it and reference it over and over again? Some, by some accounts, 24 different texts of Scripture that quote this psalm. And then thirdly, we'll come back to then, now that we know this, what does it mean for us? So starting with what does it mean when it was first written, you may note in your Bible, most of you, that you may have a heading that some psalms don't have them. We don't know where they came from, who the author was. But this particular one says, a psalm of David. And David was Israel's most famous king in the days of the kings. Many commentators believe that this particular royal psalm was written right after David and his armies conquered the Jebusites, who were kind of ancient dwellers of the city of Zion, which today we know as Jerusalem. So David's made Jerusalem his capital city. He's writing a royal psalm about this powerful king. And let's just walk through it. So I don't typically do this in preaching, but there's enough confusing verbiage here. I want to just kind of walk you through it, say, what does this mean? What does this mean? What does this mean? And then we'll go back and kind of put it together. Sound good? So we're not missing what it means. So verse one, just starting right off the top. Notice the Lord says to my Lord. And again, most of you will have a Bible that that first Lord is in all capital letters. And if you don't know, that's a signal to us as an English reader that it's the ancient Hebrew word Yahweh, which is the covenant name of God. So when he reveals himself to Moses and Moses is like, okay, you want me to go and deliver the people from Egypt? Who shall I say is going? And God reveals himself for the first time by this covenant name. Then all through the Old Testament, if you see capital L-O-R-D, it is that covenant name Yahweh. Now what's interesting is the second one is an entirely different word. And it's the word Adonai, which is simply the word for like master or Lord. And sometimes a person could be referred to as a master, but as we come to this very first verse, and he says, the Lord, Yahweh, says to my Lord or my master, and we pause right there, and we're like, wait, who, who's greater than David besides God? Because David's the king. I mean, no one's more powerful than David. Who would he call master? And yet, right out of the gate, first verse of the psalm, first line of the first verse of the psalm, David's identifying someone as his Lord or master, and that person is distinct from the covenant God, Yahweh. Now, going on with verse 1, notice he says, The Lord, Yahweh, said to Adonai, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now, this, in the ancient world, the right hand of the king symbolized majesty and honor. There's no one more honored in the kingdom than the person that the king sits at his right hand. 
Simultaneously, it's a symbol of strength and power and authority that's vested in this other person. And so David's saying, Yahweh has said to Adonai, sit at this position of honor and majesty and authority and power. It's all given to you until I put your enemies under your feet as a footstool. And this is kind of a a picture of this ancient world where kings would conquer other kings and literally as part of a ceremony in front of their people would take their foot and just stand on the other king's neck. Just humiliate this other king of like, I'm on your neck and there's nothing you can do about it. And this is the picture that, that this second Lord has his enemies under his feet, humiliated, defeated, no, no contest here. Okay, let's keep going. Verse two, the Lord sends forth from Zion, that's from Jerusalem, your mighty scepter. The scepter was the king's symbol of dominion, like a staff, very, uh, sometimes very ornately decorated. And it was just a symbol of his authority. So he's saying this authority of the king is just spreading out in concentric circles from Zion and is, is going around the world. Then verse three, your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments from the womb or the beginning of the morning the dew of your youth will be yours. And this just pictures the king's people just eagerly volunteering. That's basically what you're reading there. Um, They've overcome the darkness. The morning is coming, and they're like, we're signed up to be with this king to serve in his army. Verse 4, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. So there's a shift here from an oracle, a declaration, to an oath. God has now sworn something. And notice this double statement, he has sworn and will not change his mind. So whatever he's about to say, he's like, this is important and it's never going to go away. So continue verse four, what is that oath that he won't change his mind about? He says, you, referring still to the king of verse one, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, what's important for you to see at just a very high level here is that the king of verses one through three is now also being declared a priest. So he has both offices. He has both roles. He's anointed to rule and to reign as a king over God's people, but he is simultaneously anointed to make sacrifice for the people's sin and to represent them before God. So you have that double picture there. Uh, you got this weird name, Melchizedek. He's in Genesis 14, if you want to go back and read this story. We actually know very little about him, except in the days of Abraham, the first patriarch of the Hebrews. Abraham, basically his, his nephew Lot gets kidnapped by a bunch of kings. Abraham goes after them, rescues his nephew, is bringing him back, is passing by Jerusalem, or called Salem at that time, and this Melchizedek was the king priest of Salem in the days of Abraham, and he comes out and he blesses Abraham, and he gives him wine and bread, and they feast together, and Abraham tithes to him, but the the big picture that I think the writer is saying here is this thing about this order of Melchizedek. See, this is before the days of Moses. This is before the days of Aaron. There's no law that's been given to Israel yet. So this is not the normal order of priests, which some of you may know is called the Levitical priesthood. It's described in the book of Leviticus and Exodus and other places. So that hasn't even come about yet. So the order of Melchizedek, instead of being an official order of priests, simply refers to someone who became a priest directly from God without coming from that priestly line of Levi and then later Aaron. 
okay? So this special king priest does not come from the Aaronic line is the point. Now going on here, verses five through seven, the last few verses, the Lord is at your right hand. He will shatter kings on the day of his wrath. He will execute judgment among the nations, filling them with corpses. He will shatter chiefs over the wide earth. He will drink from the brook by the way. Therefore, he will lift up his head. Let me just take verse seven first. Now what I want you to notice is that the king is actually this Lord, this master, whoever he is. He's actually also simultaneously depicted as a human being. Because the idea is he's fighting these battles and he's fighting these battles and he comes across a stream and he needs to be refreshed by the cold, clear water just like any of us as humans would need to be refreshed. So that's the point there. Now backing up to verses five and six about all this conflict between kings. Kings are shattered, there are corpses, there are bodies, there are nations and kings who are being defeated. Um, some of you may know that in Second Samuel and First Chronicles, some of this was basically being partially fulfilled by King David himself. As the Lord's anointed king, he is smashing other kings, and he is defeating them. And um, lest we confuse this with something like a modern-day ethnic cleansing or an ethnically or racially driven kind of enemies, in the ancient times, the, the only picture was someone who worshiped God, whether they were a Jew or a Gentile, was not an enemy of God. They were a friend of God because they'd repented of their sin and they'd come and they said, I need sacrifice for my sins. So the enemies are not racially or ethnically decided. These are simply people who have opposed the purposes of God in the ancient world. And God is saying, David, as my kind of regent on earth, you go clean them out. But um, we also understand from reading the books of the Bible that Psalm 110 is also prophesying a future and he calls it a day of judgment or a day of wrath where this is still coming, that whoever this king is, there is a future justice that will circle back for the enemies of God. Now, if I, if I want to summarize this, I'm going to give you three points. This is, if you lived in the days of King David, a, a thousand years before Jesus, here's how you would have understood this psalm, okay? Number one, you would think as great as King David is, he's acknowledging a king and master who's even greater than himself, and long before Jesus, everyone considered that figure to be the Messiah. They're like, we don't know who he is. We don't know his name. We don't know when he's coming or how he's coming or exactly the mechanics of his coming. But this is talking about a Messiah, a God-sent special anointed king of Israel. Number two, the Messiah will somehow be both king and priest. He will somehow be simultaneously both God, Lord, and a human being. And then number three, you see that the Messiah will have absolute dominion and authority and rule over all of his enemies. And if they continue to resist him, he will destroy them. Now, before I get, but we don't want to over-spiritualize this, okay? I'll just be clear. The Jews in the days of King David this is how they would have heard the psalm. And it's actually pretty standard language for an ancient culture and an ancient king to say something like this, our king is better than your king, serve him or else. And you see that in Psalm 110, right? He's basically saying, whoever this Lord and king is, like you submit to him or he will shatter you. And so let's just step back into the, our, our modern era as we're hearing this. We're like, 
man, this is, this is terrible. This is the very kind of scripture that we're kind of embarrassed over sometimes as Christians, right? Because people are reading about this king, this Lord, who's just crushing other people and shattering other people. And, and that's what every other king said for thousands of years in the ancient Near East. Serve me, submit to me, do what I want, or I'll crush you. But can I show you now how this isn't just the typical bluster of an ancient king? Can I show you how this is actually good news? Now, I give you this historical context. The context is important, but it's not sufficient. It's vitally important that we understand what was originally going on, but the Psalms are a part of Christian scripture. They're a part of all of scripture that points to and declares our need for and fulfillment in Jesus. Martin Luther, the famous reformer, said, this beautiful psalm is the very core and quintessence of the whole scripture. No other psalm prophesies as abundantly and completely about Christ. It portrays the Lord and his entire kingdom and is full of comfort for Christians. Now, if you're still missing that, let me show you how the New Testament uses this psalm now, okay? Um, I mentioned before, I think that this is the most quoted psalm in the New Testament. You know, not Psalm 1, not Psalm 23, like the Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. Not Psalm 119, which is, I don't know, 10 or 20 times longer than this. This Psalm 110 is the most quoted. I can't exhaustively share this with you, but I'm going to give you three kind of buckets, three categories that when the New Testament starts quoting parts of Psalm 110, here's what it's saying. And I'll begin with the words of Jesus Christ in Luke chapter 20, verse 42. And the first thing that we see, the first way that the New Testament uses Psalm 110 is to demonstrate that Jesus is that greater one than King David. More specifically, he is the true Messiah and Son of God. So Luke chapter 20, um, the religious leaders hate Jesus by this point because he's doing things that only God can do, like forgiving sin and raising the dead. And he's claiming to be the Son of God. He's claiming to be the Messiah. And the Jewish leaders are coming to him and saying, how is it that you can claim to be the Messiah and also simultaneously, you're claiming to be God because everyone knows that the Messiah is David's son, that is David's offspring. So how is it that you're greater than David if you're his son? And this is Jesus' answer. Jesus said to the religious leaders, how can they say that Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, the Lord, that is Yahweh, said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. David thus calls him Lord, so how is he his son? And then they're like, uh, we're, we're done with questions for Jesus for now. We don't know. Um, but you see what, what Jesus is saying is, I'm the person that Psalm 110 is talking about. And I'm not only David's descendant, but I'm also David's Lord because I'm the eternal God who's come. That's the first way, just to demonstrate Jesus is the greater one than King David. He's the true Messiah. Second way that the New Testament uses this is to demonstrate that Jesus defeated all his spiritual enemies through his death and resurrection. 
Ephesians chapter 1, verse 20 says this, God raised Christ from the dead and seated him at his right hand in the heavenly places far above all rule and authority and power and dominion and above every name that is named, not only in this age, but also in the one to come. And he put all things under his feet. And if you're asking, like, when did that happen, or how, or why, is Jesus qualified to have the position of majesty and honor and authority and dominion and power? Colossians 2.15 says this, through the death and resurrection of Jesus, God disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. And 1 Corinthians 15, 26, and 27 adds, the last enemy to be defeated is death, for God has put all things in subjection under his feet. So how, how did Jesus get the right hand of the Father? And the answer is because he uniquely came as God and man, and he lived a perfect life like you and I were called to live but unable to do, and he died a sacrificial death, and he rose conquering every enemy. So notice this, there is a big gap between how the New Testament is using these words and the Jewish expectation. Because the Jewish expectation is, we don't know who this special Lord and King and priest is, but when he comes, he's gonna shatter enemies. He's gonna pile up corpses, you know? And they're thinking, what? They're thinking earthly enemies. How will we know that David's Lord has come? Well, he's gonna shatter the Romans or from some previous era, the Persians, or the Babylonians, or the Egyptians, or the Philistines, or so, but he's gonna crush our earthly enemies and we'll be free. And we also see that this Messiah, Jesus, didn't come in wrath and judgment on Israel's enemies. It's like he came and went and he barely spent any time rebuking Rome for anything. And that really got under the religious leader's skin. They're like, if you were the real Messiah, you would be bothered by what bothers us. You would be piling high the corpses of the people who are sinners. But you didn't do that. And I think it's fascinating that when we come to the New Testament, predominantly we find out that what we think of as just shattering earthly enemies, killing humans, it's actually spiritual enemies powerful forces that are greater than us that want to undo us. And this is what the New Testament is saying, that by the death and resurrection of Jesus, he shattered cosmic forces of darkness and evil. He destroyed everything that has the power to destroy you. He put death to death. And this is how Jesus is fulfilling Psalm 110. Okay? So he's the one greater than David. He's the Lord He's defeating spiritual enemies through his death and resurrection. Then one third way that the New Testament uses Psalm 110 is to demonstrate that Jesus is a faithful and forever priest like Melchizedek was, okay? So we know Jesus was born into the line of Judah, and that's the line of kings. That is not the line of priests. This is why if Jesus is going to be a priest, he's going to have to be after the order of Melchizedek because he doesn't have Levi in his line. He doesn't have Aaron in his line. He has people like David in his line. But the New Testament over and over, Hebrews 5, Hebrews 6, Hebrews 7, says of Jesus Christ, you are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. And the key point, again, is that Jesus is both king and 
priest. Now, why does that matter? Well, think about the difference in role or function between a king and a priest. And it's usually why these were separated roles. The king, if you're the king of God's people, you are there to represent God. You're not there to make up your own rules. You're not there to be overly strict, but also you're not there to be unjust and to show prejudice. You're there to say, this is what God says. I will lead God's people to obey God, to worship God, to know and love God because I'm his regent. I'm his representative on earth. A priest is very different because a priest is more like identifying with broken, sinful people and is like, I'm a sinner too. And, and, and I'm going to I'm going to take sacrifices from broken, sinful people, and I'm going to offer them to God as a way of atoning for their sin to reconcile them to the Father that they've disobeyed and that they've sinned against. And you can see why someone who is simultaneously king and priest would make a really awesome mediator. You ever been in counseling, and and someone's like, oh, I'll bring a third-party representative to sort this out. And then you find out later that the third-party representative was like their best friend from a long time ago, or they've been their therapist for 20 years. And you're like, well, that, that wasn't fair. But an incredible thing that Psalm 110 is saying is that Jesus Christ will be simultaneously king, representing God on earth, and priest, representing men and women before God, interceding, praying for us, Striving so that the will of God is done with his people, but that people understand God and know God's heart toward them. I encourage you to read the book of Hebrews, particularly like five, six, seven, eight through there, with this in mind, because this is how the book of Hebrews uses Psalm 110. You may know these sections where basically the, the writer of Hebrews is lamenting, like in this under under this old Levitical priesthood, the priest stood there day after day after day after day, first making atonement for his own sins because he was a sinner, and then making atonement for the sins of the people. And he's offering like the blood of bulls and goats and calves and the ashes of a heifer, and it never takes away sin. Like it covers it until Jesus comes, but it never really changes people's hearts. And this goes on day after day, year after year, generation after generation. And it never fixes the problem. Why? Because the scripture itself says what was happening there in the land of Israel in ancient cultures was just a shadow of the reality that was coming. So then God sends this person described in Psalm 110, this king priest. And this king priest, the Bible says, is like after the order of Melchizedek. And he enters the holy place, not with the blood of bulls and goats, but with his own blood. And he offers his own life as the perfect and ultimate sacrifice for our sins. Hebrews 10, 12 says, But when Christ had offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, waiting from that time until his enemies should be made a footstool for his feet. Does that sound different than Psalm 110? The king's not coming from the battlefield, crushing and smiting everyone who disagreed with him and then being enthroned. The king has just come from where? He's come from a bloody cross where he says in a way that David never could have known, instead of coming to shatter you, I'll be shattered for you. 
I'll be broken and bruised for your sins. And then God accepts this sacrifice once for all and then says, you get the position of honor and majesty and dominion authority for now and for all time, forever and ever. So let me give you this theme, and if, if you walk away with one big idea, this is kind of what I hear Psalm 110 saying, because Jesus has absolute dominion, you will either submit to him or be shattered by him. And I understand even that theme still doesn't preach really well today. We have a, you know, a pluralistic society, just believe what you believe. And that'd be great if that were true, that everything's kind of equal and you can believe what you believe and we all end up in the same place. But that's, that's not the picture that history or scripture presents, that it's just kind of all different versions of the same story. So the, the theme remains the same. Jesus is king of kings. You must submit to him. You must serve him. You must It's not an invitation like, it'd be really cool if we could have this kind of relationship. He's like, do this. Surrender. Give all of yourself to this king. But get this, what happens when you do? What happens when you do submit to this one king, when you surrender to this one king? He doesn't now stand on your neck. He invites you into his family. And says, here are the gifts of forgiveness, freedom, grace, eternal life. Everything that I ever deserved as the one who has all majesty, all honor, all authority, I share it with you, my family, my children, my brothers and sisters. And so I'm, I'm wrestling with this. And I'm like, I think what we as moderns and postmoderns don't like about this psalm is we're like, what, what do I do with Jesus who's like this? You know, do I fear him? Do I tremble before him? Do I just, do I just worship him? Like, am I standing at arm's length? Like, I don't want to, I don't want to disobey you or, or break your heart or, or go back on the things that you've said? Or, or do I run to him and like throw myself into his embrace? Because I'm getting a little of both of these. And uh, yes, we're getting a little bit of both of those. Let me read a section from C.S. Lewis's The Silver Chair. It's part of the Chronicles of Narnia series. And uh, one of the characters, a girl named Jill, is working out this tension. Okay. So she's come to this brook and she's thirsty. She wants to take a drink. But then she sees a lion. The lion is Aslan. The lion represents the figure of Jesus Christ. Let me just read this. Are you not thirsty, said the lion, because she's taken a step back. I am Dying of thirst, said Jill. Then drink, said the lion. May I, could I, would you mind going away while I do, said Jill. The lion answered this only by a look and a very low growl. And as Jill gazed at its motionless bulk, she realized she might as well have asked the whole mountain to move aside for her convenience. The delicious rippling noise of the stream was driving her nearly frantic. Will you promise not to do anything to me if I come, said Jill. I make no promise, said the lion. Jill was so thirsty now that without noticing it, she had come a step nearer. Do you eat girls, she said, 
I have swallowed up girls and boys, women and men, kings and emperors, cities and realms, said the lion. It didn't say this as if it were boasting, nor as if it were sorry, nor as if it were angry. It just said it. I dare not come and drink, said Joe. Then you will die of thirst, said the lion. Oh dear, said Joe, coming another step nearer. I suppose I must go and look for another stream then. There is no other stream, said the lion. And this is the beautiful tension that we're working through in a psalm like 110, where Jesus is like, come. And we're like, but are you safe? Will you promise like, that everything will go my way on my terms? He's like, absolutely not. Come, trust me. Trust the one who has all authority and power. And I want to close with what does this mean for you or how could we even do this if we're like trembling before this lion and we're like, but, but, you, but you shatter kings and you destroy armies and you have real enemies that oppose you and you're going to wipe them out. Like how do I just come? And, and I'm going to give you three A's here, just three simple things real quick that I want you to do with Psalm 110 and with the figure that's highlighted in Psalm 110. Number one, accept him. And I intentionally have this as a double meaning. I'm saying accept him just as he is, not as you want him to be. Someone once said, and I would tell you if it was, if I knew who originally said this, I don't. But someone once said, God made us in his image, and we immediately returned the favor. And that's so true. God made us in the image of God. And we turned around and we started going through scripture, sometimes even as Christians, and we're like, eh, I don't, I don't really like the wrath, the judgment, this Old Testament stuff. Ooh, I like, I like compassionate, gentle, lowly Jesus, everyone's best friend, just constantly smiling and filled with joy and never, never going back on anyone, never engaging in conflict or an argument. I like the Jesus of the cross, this bold and yet humble and gracious king who would lay down his life for his people. But then the Old Testament and the, even parts of the New Testament have this stuff I don't like, I don't understand. And we do this kind of cut-paste approach to the person of God, even Jesus, kind of like this DIY theology where we sanitize him. This is offensive to modern culture, so let's, not that we're scrubbing that out, not that we don't deep down somewhere kind of sort of believe that, but we're not going to talk about it in church. Well, we're going to talk about it in church. We are talking about it in church. Don't sanitize Jesus. Don't go through and pick the parts of Jesus that you like and the parts of Jesus that you don't like because, friends, do you realize everyone's doing this? Conservative Christians, I mean political conservatives, they have their version of Jesus. Classic liberal Christians have their version of Jesus. Progressive Christians have their version of Jesus. Social activist Christians have their version of Jesus. And like they, they overlap on some points, but they're very different people. And when you step into church on a Sunday morning or you step out into your small groups throughout the week, we should be talking about the same Jesus. And just letting the word of God inform us and say, man, that is, that is harder to wrestle with. But, but let's go because thank goodness Jesus is not trying to be the kind of God that you want or that I want. He's simply being God. And he's simply being who we need. So accept him. Accept him as he is. But then I say accept him, meaning Yes, Lord, I bow my knee. I bow my heart before you. 
You are the King of kings. You are the Lord of lords. And I want to I want to submit to you even when it's hard. I want to accept you, all of you, with all of me. So accept him. Number two, adore him. Friends, Jesus is presenting himself here as a great and awesome and all-powerful, irresistible king. And simultaneously, this beautiful, amazing, gracious high priest who comes out to us like Melchizedek and offers us the bread and wine of his own body and his own blood. He's like, I'm not here to shatter you. I'm here to offer you a right relationship with the Father through what I do for you. I love that the Jesus of Psalm 110 is, is, is powerful enough to do something about our brokenness and our doubt and our fear and our anxiety and our depression and all of those things. And simultaneously, he's this high priest who is identifying with us where we are. He's not like, hey, I'm here. If you can get, if you can get from there to here, like, then we can do church together. Like, he just comes right down into our mess, into our brokenness, and is like, let's go. I'm, I'm bringing you home with me. And we know in hindsight now what the psalmist maybe didn't know, probably didn't know, and that is that when Jesus came to earth, I said this before, but his enemies were not flesh and blood enemies during his first advent. They were not people. He was not like, I hate that person, I hate that person. Ooh, I like you. You're a tax collector. I love you. I mean, we just talked about this. Like, he's not going through, like, very often he's taking people who would be his natural enemies and saying, I'm calling you, and I'm changing your life. Come. Okay? His enemies were these spiritual forces of wickedness that wanted to destroy you, that wanted to destroy me. And ironically, paradoxically, Jesus shattered all of those spiritual forces, the power of Satan, the power of death. How? Paradoxically, he crushed those things by, instead of judging, Jesus was judged for you. Instead of pouring out his wrath, Jesus absorbed the wrath that you and I deserve. He took the justice that we deserved. Instead of shattering sinners, he's bruised and crushed for our sin. Do you worship this king? Do you love him? Does he functionally have the throne to your heart? Where you're like, of all the things that I could worship and adore and love, I love you, Jesus. So accept him, adore him. Thirdly, finally, announce him. Um, Just a sobering thought that one day, every single person on planet earth who has ever lived, every single person will meet the king of Psalm 110. And every single person will submit to him. Okay? So if you believe the words of Psalm 10, do you want your friends and your family and your coworkers and your neighbors, do you want them just one day discovering him as a righteous and holy king who punishes evil and sin and injustice and a lack of mercy? Or do you want him to meet, or do you want them to meet him before that, like, Can I show you this king who is also a priest, who did this for you, who offers you reconciliation and salvation and eternal life as a free gift? That's why I say announce it. So more and more people are being introduced to Jesus as someone who loves them and gave himself for them. 
there's a piece of artwork. Each, each week we'll be doing this. Different ones of you from Park have painted or done sculpture, different types of medium. So there's a piece of art in the foyer each week, and uh, Alyssa Beck did this one. And I love how it depicts from this psalm, there's a lion, and the lion is kind of like pouncing. It's in a strong, like attacking position. It's something to be feared. And then simultaneously above that, there's a lamb, but the lamb is upside down, like in a, in a very broken and vulnerable position. And I want you to like pause on your way out this morning and just, just look at that and enjoy that this is what Psalm 110 is saying in essence, like both of those are King Jesus simultaneously, all power, all authority, but also loves you. So Jesus is the King Priest of Psalm 110. We will submit to him or be shattered by him, but the one who invites us to submit is one who submitted to the horrors of a cross so that we could be entirely free, entirely everything that he ever designed us to be. So let's submit to this king who makes much of us in affection, in grace. Let's make much of him. Jesus, we thank you. Thank you in so many ways, Lord, that you're not the King, the Lord, the God that we want. Because even, even in our own imaginations, Lord, as we grow and mature or we accept some new ideology or worldview or get some new group of friends and hear a new thing, our view of what God should be like is changing all the time. And we're grateful, God, that you just, you just are who you are. Faithfully, reliably, simultaneously great and good. And we need a king, we need a priest who's both. Most of us have parents or grandparents or that special aunt or uncle or friend. We have people around us that are good. And they... They identify with us in the brokenness and the suffering of this life, but they are not strong enough to fix it, and that's not even their role. We also know people who are great and powerful, but they don't care about us. They don't care about our suffering. In fact, they would probably rejoice to make it worse, some of them. Jesus, you are uniquely all great, all powerful, all majestic, and all good and gracious and forgiving and reconciling. So as we go in a moment to remember your death until you return, I pray that it's on our hearts and minds to remember what it is that your death accomplished for us. That the humble king went into battle with forces of evil and at the cost of your life, you destroyed them. So we, in Christ, will never face some of the things that we probably most fear in the flesh and are least able to overcome in our own strength. Jesus, we thank you. Amen. Thanks for listening. 
Park Church exists to make disciples of Jesus for the glory of God and for the joy of all people. If you enjoyed this, make sure you share it with someone. We'd also love to hear from you on social media. Find us with at Park Church Denver. Lastly, more resources and info are available online at parkchurch.org. Peace and love.